Hello from Gilbert and Tobin, I'm Moya Dodd. And I'm Matt Rubenstein, and this is The Competitive Edge, what you need to know about competition law in Australia and around the Women's World Cup. Woo! And today, AI governance and ethics, an all-star panel featuring former Human Rights Commissioner Professor Ed Santo and our experts at GNT who join us to talk about the issues we've all been talking about and how we can talk about them better. When it comes to actually regulating, setting rules, those sorts of things, what we should be doing primarily is setting rules that are technologically neutral but technologically well-informed. And so that means identifying what are the kind of key risks associated with AI and making sure that those gaps are plugged. So what Europe has done is not that. It's in the process of drafting and debating a law that will regulate AI as technology, which we really rarely do, because what it really means is that the same law that applies to your smart washing machine will also apply to banks using AI for commercial transactions. But first, Matt, tell us what's been happening around the grounds. There's a lot of news on Microsoft's acquisition of Activision, which has become probably the most widely reported antitrust case in a long time. Even more than the book publishing merger featuring Stephen King? Sadly for some of us, it looks like the average person spends more time playing video games than reading books, and they definitely spend more money. The Microsoft case even got a courtroom artist, which I don't think even Stephen King did. And that was for the court hearing where the Federal Trade Commission asked for a preliminary injunction to pause the merger until they'd had their administrative hearing. That's right. This is a bit of an unusual process where the FTC has its own administrative judge to make a decision on any complaint that the FTC might bring. For the last 24 years, there's just been the one judge. His name is D. Michael Mike Chappell. And during that time, he has ruled against the FTC in some pretty important cases. But it's a weird thing because the FTC can overrule him, can't they? And they've also just downgraded his initial decisions to recommendations. So it's like they've made the ref a linesman. That's right, they have. In the district court, Judge Jacqueline Scott Corley said no to that injunction. She said the FTC hadn't shown that it was likely to succeed in the administrative trial. She didn't think Microsoft would have the incentive to take Call of Duty away from the other platforms. And in fact, competition in cloud services would be increased by the commitments that Microsoft has made to supply its potential rivals. And that's what EU Commissioner Margareta Vestager said too, that Microsoft wouldn't shoot itself in the foot over first-person shooters. Yeah, still a great line. (laughs) Now, in the past, when the FTC has failed to get a preliminary injunction like this, it's often backed off and let the merger go ahead, Hmm. but not always. And this time, it's appealed the decision and applied for an emergency injunction to pause the deal again. But that was denied. So right now, Microsoft isn't restrained from completing the acquisition, at least in the US. Right. And in the UK, Microsoft has said that it would pause its appeal to the Competition Appeals Tribunal and work with the Competition and Markets Authority to address those concerns about cloud gaming, which were seen to be misguided by the European Commission and now the US District Court. Yeah, and the CMA's position has evolved a bit as the situation in the US has played out. The tribunal was actually quite reluctant to adjourn the appeal, and it's ordered the CMA to explain in writing why, of course, this had nothing to do with the FTC. But it has looked a bit like they were shifting each time something happened across the pond. It's been a bit like Wimbledon watching it all go back and forth, hasn't it? And now I see that Sony, which was one of the key opponents of the merger, has agreed to sign a 10-year deal to keep Call of Duty on the PlayStation platform. And that might be a sign of the way the wind's blowing. It might. It's quite a big deal, actually, the new agreement. And the FTC can still go ahead with its administrative trial, of course. We'll see what happens there. And meantime, the New Zealand Commerce Commission has released a statement of issues and was due to make a decision last week. And we're still waiting on the ACCC. We are, but it's really starting to feel like the whole thing could be wrapped up pretty quickly now. Been a journey. 
What else is happening? Well, last time we spoke to Elizabeth Avery and Radha Ratti about the way the ACCC is approaching collaborations between competitors for environmental or sustainability goals. And they basically told us that you have to take your case to the ACCC, who will decide whether there are public benefits, like environmental benefits, that outweigh any detriments from you cooperating with your competitors. And that can take a while, unless you get an interim authorization. Yeah, and the ACCC has shown a couple of times now that they are willing to grant interim authorizations when the circumstances are right. Yeah, they did in the Red Cycle case that Rada mentioned, where the program to recycle soft plastics like grocery shopping bags collapsed, leaving the supermarkets with two and a half thousand tonnes of plastic to deal with. It's a lot of plastic. And there the ACCC granted interim authorization in about 10 days and then final authorization in the usual six months. It's not as quick as the emergency interim authorizations that were getting through during the early days of COVID, but it's not too bad. But then again, you wouldn't want to invest too much on the basis of an interim authorization if you think the ACCC might go the other way when it comes to the final decision. Exactly. And it's now granted another interim authorization for an environmental collaboration, this time between the Australian energy market operator and participants in the national electricity market. And that's to ensure reliable supply during our transition towards renewable electricity. And that's so they're able to coordinate the timing of repairs and maintenance, upgrades, new connections, things like that, share information to minimise disruptions. That's right. And there are rules about how the discussions can be held and the kind of things they can discuss. They also need an external competition lawyer approved by the ACCC to attend every meeting. Of course they do. And we can recommend some if anyone in the energy sector is interested. We sure can. Now, there were similar authorizations put in place to deal with COVID and the energy crisis set off by the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Those were dealt with very quickly, but were only put in place for about a year. This one's more squarely about the transition to renewables, and they're asking for three years this time. And is that why it took the ACCC nearly six weeks to grant the interim authorization? I think so, yeah, both because this is dealing with a longer-term issue and seeking authorization for a longer period. Well, I can't help wondering whether in the face of a rapidly overheating planet, we might need more radical collaboration than that. Maybe we could see more radical support from the ACCC. Maybe we could. The ACCC has also just published its draft guidance on environmental and sustainability claims, and that's directed at consumer protection and greenwashing rather than those claims of public benefits in the competition context. But of course, it's always good to have some updated guidance from the regulator. Well, the last formal guidance was 12 years ago, and it didn't mention greenwashing. I guess because it wasn't a word then. No, it almost got there with a bit of talk about allegedly green washing machines and also dishwashers. So close. So close. And the old guidelines still hold up pretty well, but the new ones are a bit more detailed. And of course, they've got 12 more years of experience and case studies to draw on now. So I see that they say you have to make accurate and truthful claims. You have to have evidence to back them up and not leave out or hide any important information. That's right. You should also explain any conditions or qualifications on your claims. You should avoid broad and unqualified claims. Use language that's clear and easy to understand and make sure your visual elements don't give the wrong impression, including things like trust marks or certifications. And you're meant to be direct and open about your sustainability transition. Is this one more of a vibe than the other one? A bit. This is to do with claims about yourself as a business rather than claims about a particular product, like what your sustainability goals are, how you're going to achieve them. You need to be clear and honest about those things too. Well, that all seems to make sense. But if it doesn't, you've got until 15 September to make any submissions on the draft guidelines. And our team has put together a great update that explains them better than we can. Is there anything else that's caught your interest around the grounds, Matt? Well, famously, we have a moratorium on AI, but I think we'll have to have a moratorium on moratoriums instead. Is it moratoriums or moratoria? Well, the dictionary says you can use either. It's uh, from Latin, of course, but moratorium wasn't a noun in classical Latin. 
It was a declension of the adjective moratorious, which looked like a noun, and if it was, then the plural would have been moratoria, but of course this was all a long time ago. Mm, well, the more important question is stadiums or stadia. Language is a mess, isn't it? It's a beautiful mess. But our own Peter Waters has a really fascinating update on how multilingual large language models could be used to preserve languages that are in danger of dying out, as well as leveraging the huge amount of information online in English to train AIs in other languages, including by inferring semantic or grammatical connections between those different languages. You want to be careful about that, though. I mean, some languages are pretty different from others, and they're all still evolving. That's right. And you can end up in a situation where the large language models are trained on text that has already been machine translated and not always that accurately. So the usual ethical AI standards should apply then, like human oversight of decisions that affect people, which we know all about here in Australia, and disclosures about the use of these models and what languages they've been trained on. Yeah. And we'll hear some more about that when we get to the deep dive in just a moment. These are really promising developments, uh, and we're already seeing, say, a big improvement in the way our web browsers can translate websites, like the Bundeskartelamts, for example. Of course. And Peter asks whether AI can solve the Tower of Babel and take us back to a place where everybody can understand everyone else, where effectively we speak the same language. That's a dream. I actually read a novel about these themes back in the day. Uh, it was about this guy who finds a mysterious manuscript in an unknown language and decides that it's instructions for a universal translator, which he has to build in his basement. So is this all just a plug for your book, Matt? The book's out of print at the moment, unfortunately. Oh. <laughs> but I did upload it to Claude 2, which is now an open beta and can summarise whole novels. Really? Including in the form of a limerick. Go on then. A manuscript yellowed through age, full of words on page after page, in symbols unknown and meanings unshown, locked secrets passed down through the age. Is that accurate? It's pretty accurate. You can also get a haiku. Uh, No, I think we'd better get to the deep dive. I guess so. Technology partner Simon Burns recently moderated a panel on AI governance and ethics with an all-star lineup of experts. That's right. We had former Human Rights Commissioner Professor Ed Santo, who's now a director at the Human Technology Institute, as well as GNT's own Jennifer Bradley and Andrew He. Here's Simon getting the discussion started. Let's take a listen. There's probably some value in doing a bit of scene setting to confirm what we're actually talking about and why we're talking about it, because when we get to discussions around regulation and governance, that's often the first hurdle to tackle. So, Jen, I might throw to you a little bit around why is AI different, why are we even up here talking? We need to think about AI a bit differently to other technologies, specifically in a risk management sense, because the risks posed by AI are quite unique. And that stems from both the technical features of the AI itself, but also the social context in which we're deploying AI. So if we think about some of those risks, one of them is the opaque nature of AI. So that's the inability for humans to explain and understand and then challenge the decision-making process of complex AI systems. And that creates issues for transparency, it creates issues for accountability, and it also makes risk management harder because if you don't understand the decision-making process, you can't manage the risks as well. Secondly, there's a number of unique data risks associated with AI. So while there are similarities from a privacy perspective and a cybersecurity perspective, because AI relies so heavily on data for its inputs and its outputs, any lack of representation in the data, any historical bias in the data, any inaccuracies in the data can lead to quite 
harmful bias or unjust results. And you could also have AI hallucination, as you were talking about before, which has been a bit of a buzzword of late when we've been talking about chat GPT. So this is where generative AI systems come out with an output that seems correct, that seems plausible, but is actually factually incorrect if you dig into it further. And the issue with AI is because it works at scale and makes decisions at scale, it can really amplify and entrench some of these sort of unjust outputs that are not as prevalent if it's a human decision maker just because it's done on less of a scale. And Ed, maybe one for you off the back of that. The EU is currently grappling with how to define AI for the purposes of its AI Act. And it's always the first sort of conversation point around, you know, if we're developing a policy or assurance framework, what is the subject matter of that? What's your take on how we should be thinking about AI when we're putting it in that governance model or regulatory model, broad or narrow? Yeah, it's slippery to define. People who are working on the technical side of AI don't see it as a term of art. It's it's more a marketing term like modern medicine. And so I think it's really helpful to break down artificial intelligence into the key four component parts because really it's the convergence of four different techniques and technologies that I think constitute AI. And those are the rise of modern computing power, so massive, massive increases in computing power over the last few decades. The second is big data sets. The third is automation. And the fourth, which is the thing that is as close as we get to magic, is machine learning. But it's not magic, right? So the thing about machine learning, and this is, I think, very evident from the, the previous discussion, is that it's really about identifying patterns in the data. And so what we're able to do with AI in 2023 is we're able to take those big data sets and, and see patterns in there. We can see from fast, fast quantities of, say, commercial transactions that a tiny proportion of them might be fraudulent because they all seem to have the same characteristics. So when it comes to actually regulating, setting rules, those sorts of things, what we should be doing primarily is setting rules that are, I think, technologically neutral, but technologically well-informed. And so that means identifying what are the kind of key risks associated with AI and making sure that those gaps are plugged. So what Europe has done very boldly is not that. <laughs> what Europe is, well, it, it's in the process of drafting and debating a law that will regulate AI as technology, which we really rarely do for good reasons. I think it's a really difficult task that they've set themselves because what it really means is that the same law that applies to your smart washing machine will also apply to banks using AI for commercial transactions. And that is incredibly broad. And so there, there are some advantages, obviously, in doing that, but there are also some really difficult risks that I think they're just trying to get to grips with now. Jen, it's probably worth commenting a bit on where we are today in AI regulation. Like, it's, it's, we're not in a vacuum completely, are we? Yeah, so we haven't yet followed Europe and Canada and proposed a AI-specific regulation, but that doesn't mean you don't look at general laws, tech-neutral laws that can be viewed through an AI lens and applied to regulate AI. Normal laws such as privacy, cybersecurity, product liability, consumer protection, Corporations Act requirements, 
copyright. All these general laws play a role in regulating AI, and that's before you even look at laws that apply to particular sectors, so financial services regulation or particular organisations such as health or government organisations being subjected to administrative law requirements. And then there's use cases. So AI systems that are used in autonomous vehicles might be subjected to driving laws. AI systems used in surveillance will be subject to surveillance laws. And all of these laws will play a role in regulating AI through its entire life cycle. So at the design stage, at the testing stage, at the manufacturing stage, and the inputs and outputs of the AI system as well. And we have seen that to date already. So in the privacy space, we've already seen regulators, for example, make comments on AI systems. Uh, so organisations under the Privacy Act have to take reasonable steps to ensure that the personal information that it uses or collects or discloses is reasonably accurate. And in Clearview AI, they had a facial recognition tool that was used to match the images of people with images they scraped from the internet. And the Privacy Commissioner said that they hadn't taken reasonable steps to ensure that that matching process was good enough to make it accurate. And so it's, it's instances like that which illustrate how general law is being applied to new technologies as they, they come along. So it is really important for organisations to stop and think and look at their current regulatory environment and how that impacts their use of AI. Can I just add something? Maybe I should take this opportunity in public to issue a mere culpa. So my previous role was as Human Rights Commissioner. If there was a bank manager, let's say, right, who just said, you know what, I don't think women make good customers and so I'm not going to give home loans to women. We would have been all over that person, no question, right? We also know that banks here in Australia and around the world through their algorithmic decision-making systems are actually finding it really difficult to tune those systems in a way that gives fair outcomes for women and men. But we start to ask ourselves a very different question there. We go, oh gosh, is that an ethical problem? Is there an ethical problem with AI there? And the answer is no. <laughs> That's a deeply problematic reframing of the question because it is just as illegal to discriminate against someone using a deep neural net, the most sophisticated form of AI, as it is for that crusty old bank manager to do it using no uh, technology at all. So the mea culpa is we got together, myself and the head of the ACCC at the time, Rod Sims, all of the federal regulators, and we all had this incredibly sheepish moment where we all thought, oh my gosh, we've all been too slow, basically, to enforce those existing legal rules that probably cover 80-90% of activity when it comes to AI, to enforce those really, I guess, rigorously. And... I guess that's starting to change. So the Clearview AI case is a really good case. There's some globally significant cases that are coming out of Australia. The Travago case is another one. And that, that, that's starting to change the regulatory risk landscape without a single new subsection of legislation being passed. Which is a good segue to a question for you, Andrew. There's a ton of reg consultation and reform agendas underway from the Privacy Act. The surveillance laws are, are getting looked at, Copyright Act, Cyber. Do we solve this by just looking fresh at those laws and plugging some holes? Do we need to go down that, the EU sort of path of regulating AI? What's your take on all that? The law reforms themselves need to be cognizant of the actual risks when it comes 
to AI. And it's not just the risks that come with using AI, but also ensuring that the regulatory levers are correctly aligned to encourage the development of AI industries in Australia. There's no reason why this country can't be a leader globally when it comes to AI technologies. So, for example, when we look at the Privacy Act reform at the moment, there's a bunch of proposals in there around how companies need to treat the identified data. At the moment, the paradigm is if you have personal information but you de-identify it, then it's no longer subject to the Privacy Act and it therefore gives the company much more freedom to do what it wants with that data. In circumstances where, because it's been de-identified, the risks to individuals in respect of their personal information has largely been eliminated through that de-identification process. And we can see in the Privacy Act reforms at the moment, one of the suggestions is that de-identified data be brought into the Privacy Act in that it be treated the same way as personal information in certain circumstances. Um, a lot of companies, whether they be AI companies or non-AI companies, use de-identified data to improve their products, to improve their services, to learn more about their customers in a, in a sort of generic and not, not individualized sense. How all these companies will now be faced with, I suppose, increased compliance burdens when it comes to de-identified data in circumstances where, in my view, the actual increase of risk to individuals is just not there. The risk to individuals doesn't justify those new rules. So these new reforms that you spoke about, Simon, I think they are an opportunity for us to make sure our laws are fit for purpose for the 21st century. They should be looked at both from the perspective of protecting individuals or protecting the, the relevant stakeholders from the risks of AI, but they should also be calibrated in a way that allows business to develop sort of new products and it allows the AI industry in Australia to, to flourish. And I know you've done a lot of work with various organisations around assurance frameworks and thinking around the models or the governance models they put around that. What's your comment on the state of play and the maturity of those models, the effectiveness of those models? Where are we at? So in the last seven or eight years, we've had this explosion of new discussions about the ethics of AI. So there's been over 700 ethics frameworks and policies and principles and so on. So in one sense, they're good in that companies and governments and civil society organizations are all starting to grapple with some of the social implications of AI. There's a but coming, and that is if you actually look at the empirical data, in other words, what difference do those ethics frameworks make? It's really dismal. Over 99% of them have no discernible impact at all. So I spent about a year speaking to every single engineer and data scientist that I could come across who are actually working with these things. And I tended to ask them two questions. I'd say, one, is there an ethics framework or principle or whatever that applies in your work? And the vast majority of them said yes, which I thought was sounded like good news. And then I asked them the second question, which is, what do you do with it? <laughs> and they say, they tend to say, well, you know, they say things like do no harm and respect privacy and so on. And that was good because I thought, well, that's what I want to do anyway. That matches my own values. But the problem is they're expressed at such a high level of generality that I can't do anything useful with them. So I basically put that piece of virtual paper to one side and never think about it again and really focus on the brief. And so that's really, really interesting. So in the last year or two, what we've started to see is something that I guess is designed to fill the gap between ethical principles and practice. And so the best term for that thing that 
feels that missing middle is assurance frameworks. So here in New South Wales, the New South Wales government was one of the first governments anywhere in the liberal democratic world to develop an assurance framework that applies to all uses, uh, development and use of, of AI by government agencies here in New South Wales. I was one of the, the full disclosure, I was one of the authors of it. And what, what it is designed to do, it's not particularly sexy. It is a bunch of questions, really. It's that's actually quite a sexy PowerPoint, which I have no <laughs> responsibility for. But actually, really, when you break it down, it's just a Kahneman principle, right? Like a whole bunch of questions that you need to consider throughout that life cycle that Jen referred to before of AI from, you know, the design and conceptualization phase right until the operation phase. And if you're answering all of those questions favorably, then you're on the right track. But of course, you can't just self-regulate, there's also really important independent oversight that exists as well. So that is starting to shift the needle. There are those sorts of approaches that we're seeing in government. We're, we're seeing it in, in some leading corporates as well. Perhaps most famously, Microsoft was one of the first organizations to develop such a, a structure. And then, you know, the president of Microsoft, Brad Smith, who is a lawyer, also has a master's in human rights, which is a uh, you know, an, an unusual but a great thing, I think, for people who are real captains of industry. He has been absolutely at the forefront of, of ensuring that that is applied. And it's not always perfectly applied, but, but I do think that that is the sort of thing that's much more practically useful when you, again, go back and speak to those engineers and data scientists and others who are involved in the actual practical building and then oversight of those systems. They find those things much more useful. Maybe Andrew joined the dots a little bit on that and, and Jen's comment around laws of general application application being applied to AI. Do you want to step through sort of the, the director's duties, board governance sort of framework that applies and, and how that's getting interpreted within AI lens? Yeah, so the, at the moment, director's duties, the way they're expressed in 180 of the Corps Act, it's expressed in general terms. So AI issues or IT issues fall squarely within things that directors need to consider as part of their duties. Now, I think one of the themes that's come through some of the comments on the panel today is that AI is not really a separate technology. It's very hard to define it as a separate technology. So we may not actually know when we're dealing with AI. And when boards are making decisions around their, their systems, they may not know they're dealing with AI. For example, when we use something like ChatGPT, it's very obvious we're using something that has AI in it. But what happens when we're using something like Microsoft Teams or Zoom, and that has AI functionality in it, where it's, for example, listening to the conversation and able to produce a set of minutes. There's AI in that, but in that sort of example, it may not be obvious to the to the business or to the to the board who's approving decisions that AI is being used. So in that sense, the question is not so much whether boards are asking themselves the right questions around AI. In my view, the question is whether boards are asking themselves the right decisions when they're making decisions around technology. Because the, a lot of the issues that apply to general technology, even complex technology that companies make decisions on today, apply equally to AI. So things like, you know, who are you dealing with? What is the system doing? What data is being ingested into the system? What's being produced by the system? What are the ethical issues when it comes to using the system? They apply equally to IT systems, complex IT systems that don't include AI, but they also cover AI systems as well. Coming back to director's duties, in particular, the other questions that I think boards or directors need to ask themselves. One, do they understand enough of the risks? Boards or, or directors, when they make decisions, are, are required, even when they engage expertise advice, to bring an independent mind and in, to make an independent assessment of that advice. So that, that, that to me brings up two things. One, do they understand enough of the risks so that they, that they can interrogate that advice properly? 
And two, do they have the right expertise either in-house or externally to be advising them on these sort of technology and AI issues? And to my mind, when we talk about all the particular risks around AI, I think one of the key risks when it comes to the adoption of AI in Australia is whether we as an economy have the right skills. Are, are there enough of the right people who are able to understand these issues to advise companies on their adoption of these technologies? Simon, can I just add one thing to that? I think when we think about risk management and assurance in AI, when it's slightly different to other technologies is the combination of skills that you need involved. It's not just the technical, the coders, the data scientists and the like. You need to involve a more diverse group of people early on in the decision-making as well as later on in the decision-making. So you bring those diverse Concept. So you were saying before, Ed, that a lot of people when they're at the coding stage, they don't really know what do we do with these very high level ethical principles. And that's perhaps where you need to have your lawyers and your ethicists more involved in the earlier stage of the process <laughs> to give that kind of broader view as to how these sort of biases and things can come out. And I know HTI have sort of the three themes around policy skills and tools. Do you want to weigh into this chat? How are you, how are you guys focusing? So some bad news and some good news. I'm going to start with the bad news. So I think if you, if you draw those two strands together, it means that we've got two skills gaps in Australia. There's the technical skills gap. We need to just pump out more PhD level data scientists and so on. But there's also what we're calling a strategic skills gap. And by that, we mean precisely the sorts of things that Jen is talking about. So to do something as basic as run a competent procurement process in an organization or in a government agency, you need to know some pretty fundamental things about what you're buying. And you can't successfully or effectively go through that procurement process to get yourself an AI tool that will be really useful and safe and so on, unless you have a kind of minimum viable understanding of what AI is, what some of the risks and threats are, and how you want it to be tuned in a way that it will give you the greatest value. And so while I'm still on the bad news, you know, here's a stat. Less than 25% of company directors self-report being able to explain what artificial intelligence is, but more than three quarters of company directors are saying that they feel huge pressure to use more AI in the companies that they're leaders in. That's a really, really worrying combination, right? Because what that means is people who don't understand what the thing is are buying more of it, you know, and the dirty secret of AI is that about 80% of the time in the real world, it fails. 80% of the time, right? I literally have not come across another area of human activity where there's such a high failure rate. And the response to that failure rate is really interesting. It's give us 10 more kilos of AI, right? Like it's, it, we, we just didn't get the right AI. We so there is a fundamental skills problem. It's, there are at least two dimensions to it. It's this, the technical skills as well as the strategic skills. So that's the bad news, but this is like a CS song. I'm going to kind of go into the you know, uplifting bit now. The good news is we don't all have to become PhD level data scientists. It's that, that idea before of a, of a kind of minimum viable understanding or literacy about AI that you need in order to be able to contribute really positively. If you're a leader in your organization, there's big high level decisions about when and where you'll use AI, when and where it doesn't make sense to use AI. And then if you're involved in the 
development, the procurement development, implementation, oversight of AI tools, how you can contribute most effectively. Because even without those technical skills, you probably have a lot to offer, but you've got to find a way of connecting your knowledge to the particular activity. And that does require a smaller than a PhD level skills uplift. So I think AI can be part of the problem and, and the solution. The most complex and often the best systems that we all rely on are socio-technical systems, which is a fancy way of saying that there's some human input and there's some machine input. But when I hear people saying, you know, AI is going to have all of the solutions to the problems that AI has called, it, it reminds me of this Simpsons episode where Reverend Lovejoy is teaching a whole bunch of kids and he'd ask a question like, what's three plus four? And the child would say seven. And he'd go, no, Jesus. And then he'd ask another question. And the answer to every question was Jesus. Um, I, I sometimes feel like there are some evangelists for artificial intelligence for whom the answer to every question is AI. The answer to a lot of questions may well be AI. So I'm not saying it's never the right answer, but it's usually a more complex answer, which tries to get the best of human and machine intelligence. And I think that's a much more nuanced conversation and a much more important one, right? I think the people who I admire most in the technical side of the AI world, you know, the, the person who wrote, Stuart Russell, who wrote the book, which is literally entitled Artificial Intelligence, he gave the, the, the lectures last year and he's proposed this new law for AI, which is assume it fails. Like, hopefully it won't. And in many cases it won't. But if you assume that it fails, then you're going to build a much more secure system around it, which will, again, bring the best of human intelligence into the mix so that you can make sure that if it does fail, hopefully rarely, then you will have a really effective way of identifying that failure and correcting. What a great panel session. It's always good to hear people who know a lot about their topic and the kind of nuance they bring to it. Like most of us may assume that AI is qualitatively different from existing technology and needs a whole new kind of regulation, but maybe we've had what we needed all along. It's a bit grim to hear that 99% of ethics frameworks have no discernible impact, but maybe assurance frameworks and sexy PowerPoints are going to make more of a difference. Maybe. This is part of an ongoing series on the challenges of AI and we'll keep an eye on what they're doing next. We will. But before we go, Matt, what can you see in your crystal ball? Well, you may have seen that the ACCC is taking legal action against secure parking, which it alleges made misleading claims about its secure spot service. Yes, I did see that. They alleged that the secure spot service didn't actually secure a spot. And people who thought they'd secured a spot turned up to find that the car parks were already full. Something about this that feels awfully familiar. Yeah, there was actually a similar allegation made about rental car companies back in the early 90s. And I found a recording of a representative of the Trade Practices Commission, I assume, making a complaint in front of an appreciative audience, which I've reproduced here for the purposes of reporting the news. I don't understand. I made a reservation. Do you have my reservation? Yes, we do. Unfortunately, we ran out of cars. But the reservation keeps the car here. That's why you have the reservation. I know why we have reservations. I don't think you do. If you did, I'd have a car. So you know how to take the reservation, you just don't know how to hold the reservation. And that's really the most important part of the reservation, the holding. Anybody can just take them. I do remember that. And I was a bit reminded of it when I read FIFA's response to someone who bought first come first serve tickets in the very first sale period for the Women's World Cup, then found they'd been assigned to the nosebleed seats. FIFA said that 
Tickets could be purchased on a first-come, first-served basis. However, at no stage has FIFA indicated to ticket holders that seats would be assigned according to when tickets were purchased or on any other priority basis. Uh, So the tickets were first-come, first-served, but the seats weren't. Apparently. You know, about uh, 10 years ago, the ACCC went after Coles for its claims about freshly baked bread and then an attempted cartel to fix the price of eggs and then after Maggie Beer over mislabeled pork products. And the joke at the time was that maybe the ACCC had forgotten to do its enforcement priorities for the year, so it had just literally cooked up something over breakfast. (laughs) Oh, very good. You're making me hungry. They always had a thing about fruit juice too, didn't they? Not to mention those canned deciduous fruit snacks. No, it was a trend. And if we're heading into a series of enforcement actions now based on old episodes of Seinfeld, I'm definitely here for that. Aren't we all? I mean, there's the one where Kramer sues a coffee shop when its coffee was too hot. Definitely a product safety issue. But that was based on a real life case, wasn't it? It was. Uh, There's the one where George buys a used car because it was owned by John Voight, but it wasn't the actor, it was some dentist. Very interesting questions under the consumer law. Mm, Is no soup for you a refusal to deal? It really sounds like one. There was a Chinese restaurant where they kept saying there'd be a table in five, ten minutes, apparently without reasonable grounds for making that prediction. That's it. We finally become a podcast about nothing. I'm surprised it took this long. (laughs) Well, remember, you can find relevant links in the show notes and email us at edge at gtlaw.com.au. And we've got some great guests still to come, including partners Elizabeth Avery and Louise Klempke on the recent International Forum on Antitrust Regulation in the UK. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe, leave us a review and tell your friends. Till next time, this was The Competitive Edge with Gilbert and Tobin. Old words on vellum, unreadable, inscrutable, meanings lost in time. That all you got? I got. On fields green they dance, Women's World Cup roars to life, champions arise. Very good.